From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. We are starting, though, talking about some changes that have been announced, some we knew about, others that are going to be happening in the future. As of today, the B.C. government announcing that the changes will reduce some of the difficulties for families, those who are going through separation or divorce in this province. One of the big changes is for people with pets and that the change in this law, and we've talked about this in the past, uh, changes about the first phase concerning companion animals. Those come into effect to better help people determine things like ownership and possession of companion animals following a separation or divorce. They're also bringing in public engagement. This is encouraging people to share their experiences with family law, and this is so that changes can be made in the future when it comes to the safety and well-being of children, especially uh, when we're talking about separation and divorce. Well, joining me to talk a bit more about changes that have been made and also uh, what's coming in the future is Stuart Zuckerman, a lawyer with Zuckerman Law. Stuart, thank you so much for being here today. Thanks for having me. I wanted to start with the pets and the companion animals because that's the one that officially comes into place today. How big of a change do you see this being? Well, it's a big change in the law. Uh, I can tell you I had a a nightmare of a case maybe 15 years ago where the the husband paid for two dogs for himself, uh, his wife, and for his mother-in-law. Sorry, for his mother who lived in the suite, uh, the rental suite of their home, and uh, the husband and wife ended up getting in a fight, and uh, the husband was removed from the home. Now, they had two dogs, a brother and sister, Jack and Jill. Jack lived with the husband's mother in her suite. Jill lived with the wife and the husband in their side of the house, and uh, when the husband got kicked out of the house, the the wife ended up luring the dog Jack from the mother's side into her side and wouldn't give the dog back, wanted the mother-in-law out of the house so she could rent out the suite now that the husband was out. We went to court to try to get an order uh, to get the dog back, to, and it was a companion animal to the elderly mother-in-law, um, and she, her, she was heartbroken over the loss of the dog. And uh, the court looked at the receipts. The, the wife's name was on the receipts. And they said these dogs are chattels, just like a a TV or a stereo or a couch. And whoever purchased the dog or whoever's name the dog is registered in, that's the owner. And that was the end of it. So the wife got to keep the two dogs because they were registered in her name. But the new uh, provisions um, don't treat pets as chattels. Uh, They look at a a wide variety of circumstances, like the the circumstances under which the animal was acquired, the extent to which each spouse cared for the animal, so the history of care, whether there's been any family violence, um, whether there's been any uh, cruelty towards the animal or a threat of cruelty by either spouse towards the animal. Sometimes you have people break up and one spouse, you know, threatens the family pet as a means of getting control over the other spouse. So that's factored in. And of course, the relationship between any child of the relationship and the pet is considered as well. And so is the willingness and the ability of uh, each of the spouses to meet the needs of the animal or any other circumstance uh, that the court deems relevant. So now the court has a, a wide discretion, almost looking at pets the same way you would look at what used to be called custody or care 
of a child where you're focusing on, you know, what's in the best interests of the family and the animal uh, in order to make to come to the right decision. So do you think this is a good move or a good change? Oh, it's, it's absolutely much better than the, the previous arrangement, which only looked at who owned or who paid for or who, in whose name the animal was registered and didn't consider any of these factors. All right. So that's the change that comes into place starting today. And the Attorney General also made an announcement earlier today saying they're now seeking input from the public in several other areas and specifically looking at family violence and protection orders, parenting assessments, uh, views of child reports and time with and the care of children. Do, are those areas, do you think, does the, the law need a change or, or are there areas where it is really lacking? Well, there, you know, there, there, there are a lot of provisions in the Act currently about family violence uh, as being something for the court to focus on, and uh, protection of children has always been uh, there. Um, so, you know, it's certainly it's an opportunity for the public to um, and family lawyers to make their comments and their observations known to the government uh, for the government to consider changes. Uh, you know, these views of the ch- child report have been around. Uh, for quite some time, so they have been ordered. There, there has been, you know, the courts give less weight to the views of children who are kind of less mature. So if a child is kind of under the age of 11 or 12, the courts tend to give less weight to what the child wants um, in terms of which parent they want to live with or whether they want to live with both, and they give more weight to the views of children who who are more mature um, over the age of 12, typically, um, uh, so that might be something where the where the uh, the legislation may have something to say about that based on the on the views of the public. But you know, in my view, there has certainly been um, sufficient protection against family violence and uh, to enable views of the children to be considered by the court. So I'm not sure uh, what specific changes the government would look at making to those sections. And one other area, and I know uh, the Attorney General touched on this as well, talking about the fact that going through a court process, going through a separation or a divorce, it shouldn't be uh, extremely traumatizing, or at least it should be made to be as smooth as possible. Um, She mentioned or talked about intimate partner violence and uh, and things that need to be a priority in the legal system. Uh, Are the priorities, do you think, set or, or is there room for improvement there as well? Well, there's room for improvement. I mean, the issue that I see is is access to justice. So, you know, unless you have a, a you know a pretty good income or a significant amount of savings, it's very difficult. It's expensive to hire a family law lawyer to go to court. Typically, you know, a, a, a highly experienced family law lawyer for a day in court, you could easily spend anywhere from ten thousand to twenty thousand dollars per day in court, including the preparation time for all the materials that have to be prepared. Um, and with a junior lawyer, you might be looking at five to 10000 per day in court. That, that's money that most people can't afford. So a lot of people get shot out of going to court because they simply can't afford it. And the legal aid restrictions, you know, you basically can't qualify for legal aid unless you're earning, I can't remember the figure, but it's a very low income figure, something like $15,000 or less per year. Like if you qualify for welfare, then you'll qualify for legal aid. But then even if you qualify for legal aid, there's only certain things that legal aid will cover. So that usually that deal with family violence and protection, but don't deal with 
things like spousal support or division of assets, things of that nature. So uh, a lot of people are, are kept out of the process or forced to self-represent. And when they self-represent, they don't do a very good job. I'm in court, you know, every every week or two, and I see self-represented people trying to make their arguments. Unfortunately, they, they focus on emotional things, things that aren't relevant to the court, and they don't really know the law. So, you know, they may walk away with the perception that they're not being given a fair shake, and it's because they're not making the right arguments, and they're not focused on the right facts. So, you know, that's problematic for the public and has room for improvement. All right. Well, and again, uh, that was part of the announcement earlier today. Stuart, we will leave it there for today, but thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Well, the cold weather is still here. It is going to warm up as we get into the week. Some other weather issues, though, in uh, the forecast for some areas. Looking at this weekend, though, I think a lot of people, if uh, you didn't have burst pipes yourself, you might have seen restoration trucks in your neighbourhood. You certainly would have seen stories about this, whether it was the Mission Hospital, trouble on BC ferries. Uh, Many, many places had pipes burst and and companies coming to help them clean up. We're going to actually check in with a plumbing company a little bit later on in the program to talk more about that. But what about insurance, especially if you're dealing with a strata situation? Well, Tony Giaventu is the executive director of the Condominium Homeowners Association of BC. And Tony joins us now to talk a little bit more about this. Thanks so much for being with us. Oh, it's a pleasure. It's um, pretty cold, isn't it? (laughs) It is. Hopefully we are coming to the end of the cold snap. But I know this past weekend... I was hearing stories, uh, seeing them on different neighborhood apps of people dealing with burst pipes. I saw restoration uh, crews, cleanup crews, uh, many of them in my neighborhood. Uh, I've been reading about stories from Vancouver Island where this has been happening as well. Have you been hearing much about frozen pipes and people uh, seeing damage to their homes caused by this weather? Not in as much larger buildings because there tends to be a bit of a heat loading that keeps the buildings in stable condition. But in smaller developments, so in duplexes and townhouse developments or smaller apartment buildings, if a unit is vacant, people are um, going away on holidays for the winter or it's an Airbnb that's not being used right now or a vacant tenant unit. Um, they're either turning their heat off or they're reducing their heat quite low and it just can't keep the units warm enough to prevent freezing pipes. And what does that do? Because I know some of these questions have already been asked, especially for people that are in maybe a strata type situation, whether it is a smaller building and they're dealing with this. How does it work when we're talking about strata insurance versus personal insurance? Well, if the pipe freezes, and and you need to look closely at your strata bylaws too, because a lot of stratas have adopted bylaws that really talk about minimum climate standards within units. But if the pipe freezes and there's a pipe burst when they thaw out um, and it results in a loss, if the damage is below the deductible of the strata's insurance, and remember that a lot of these deductibles are fifty dollars or $100,000, there's a pretty good chance it's going to be below that deductible. You're going to be the responsible for the damages of your own unit. Likewise, other owners will be responsible for the damage of their units if it turns out the amount's below the deductible. If it's above the deductible, the claim was probably going to be a legitimate water escape claim due to frozen pipes on the strata's deductible. 
but if it's discovered that you didn't have heat in your unit and you were responsible for this freezing and failure, you could easily find your face paying that $100,000 deductible or more. So, you know, I think people need to be really prudent, keep the heat on in their units. Um, uh, outdoor faucets and taps are another issue. People forget to, you know, turn them off and to um, turn them off from the inside. That's another issue that occurs. Um, and just really maintain your systems and keep your units warm. Yeah, and I think, uh, unfortunately, a lot of people are learning about that the hard way and uh, dealing with uh, broken pipes and damage in their in their buildings or their units. Tony, is it a different scenario if we're talking about if it's, say, a sprinkler system and a pipe in a sprinkler system that goes to a whole building as opposed to a pipe in your unit where, for those reasons that you just mentioned, maybe because you are away, turned the heat off, or, or you didn't maintain it, are those things dealt with differently? They could be different, but they could also be connected. If you have a wet sprinkler system where there's active water in the line, um, you the, the freezing may be as a result of being away and turning your heat off. So yes, you could find that you are responsible for that and responsible for the damages. But sprinkler systems um, are, are the less likely to probably fail as opposed to older plumbing systems that are in outside walls where the heat's not turned on. So, you know, a lot of it has to do with building design. But again, it's a time for every, everyone to be actively vigilant and to look at what's happening. And, it's, you know, it's oftentimes a surprise to people if you're in a townhouse complex and you have sprinklers in your unit. It's a surprise when the lines freeze and then everybody, you know, looks up and discovers that, hey, wait a minute, these weren't insulated. So, you know, communities probably need to be a bit proactive and look at how their systems are actually operating as well. And I think that's something that uh, people are uh, not pleasantly surprised with as well, in that we don't insulate or often build for the minus 13 or these expanded deep freeze temperatures, and it's creating a bit of a problem. Yeah, whether it's minus 15, minus 20, or plus 40, it seems to be that our buildings aren't as resilient as we thought they were going to be. Do you see it becoming an issue in Stratus as well, if there is a scenario like that? I mean, it's one thing to know if somebody was away, that's pretty easy to show, okay, they were away, and did they turn the heat off? Did they do something that led to this? But if it's just somebody maybe that didn't maintain their unit or they turn the heat off maybe for some other reason is it can it be become kind of a sticky situation for stratas when you're trying to find out the the source and to, to lay blame well blame comes later right the very first thing you do is you stop the water at whatever cost it takes you get restoration on site immediately to deal with removing the water to prevent further damage to the building you contact the insurance provider for the strata corporation. They'll send an adjuster. If it's over the claim amount, it becomes a strata claim. If it's an under the claim amount, then each owner is going to be responsible for their units, and the strata will be responsible for common areas. And yeah, it's going to take some investigation. Um, the restoration companies, though, the plumbers, the um, adjust insurance adjusters, they're usually pretty helpful when it's when it comes down to the detective work of figuring how this all started. So that evidence can be really important for the strata, but it's not always black and white. It, it may be um, a really a vague situation of what actually did occur was in an uninsulated wall, uninsulated attic. Was it um, part of the building system problem or was it the direct action of the owner who turned the heat off 
it's not always easy to nail down. But the key thing, keep the units heated. If there's a failure, respond immediately. And uh, like you said, too, with the policies, uh, and I think uh, we so often, we might know generally what's in an insurance policy, but uh, reading that fine print, really with anything, not only insurance policies, uh, I would imagine this is another good reminder, uh, maybe too late for some people, uh, if they're already experiencing that damage, but another good reminder to read those policies and know exactly where things stand should things go sideways. Absolutely, and really Check if there's any exclusions on your homeowner policy and see if your homeowner policy will cover the deductible amount for the Strata Corporation. You might not have knowingly done anything that caused this, but you might have been responsible for it as a result of something within your unit that failed and you could be facing that deductible amount. So check your policy. You know, the other thing is that Stratas are trying to download the simple things like shoveling and salting sidewalks and entries to units and townhouses especially. If it's common property, you can't download the responsibility. And I was dealing with the strata on Thursday where the ramp wasn't properly cleared to the underground parking garage. It was icy, a vehicle coming down the ramp was coming slowly but slid into the door of the parking garage before it was opened and caused damage in the Strat is going to be in quite a dispute with the owner now um, over who's going to pay for the new door. No damage to the car. The door was wrecked. But the reality is the strata wasn't maintaining their ramp. They weren't sanding. They weren't salting. And it was covered with ice. So, you know, it's the actions of all of the parties really come into this. It is a timely reminder, given what we've been seeing the past few days with these very, very cold temperatures. Tony, we will leave it there for today. But as always, great to talk with you. Thanks a lot, Jill, and stay warm. Well, some new health research is showing exactly what depression is costing BC's health system with a price tag of more than $1.5 billion over a two-year period and a lot of money coming right out of people's pockets. Well, joining me now to talk more about this and the research behind it is Sonia Cressman, adjunct professor at the SFU Faculty of Health Sciences. Thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thank you. Thanks for having me. It seems like such a huge number, but I know a lot of people do do deal with depression and, and have different, different levels of depression. Before we get into the numbers and the costs, what were you looking at specifically for this study? So this study was designed to look at the costs both that are paid by the healthcare system and that are not paid by the healthcare system and by other members of society. And how many people did you look at? There were over 250,000 people in British Columbia diagnosed with major depression over the observation period in our study. And um, that it's something that affects people um, every year. I'm sure these are people that are have been received a diagnosis, but there are also many people who don't formally receive a diagnosis. So it's just the tip of the iceberg. I, I mean, that's a, it's a lot, such a large number. Oftentimes with studies, uh, we're dealing with, with 500 or 1,000 people and getting that information. But being able to tap into that and to, to really get that information from such a large group, was that something, was that, was that helpful as far as you being able to get a better picture of, it, of exactly uh, the, the costs of depression and, and how prevalent it is in this province? 
It really gave us the power to be able to observe a change in healthcare costs over time. So we found that when depression was effectively treated the first time, costs went down. But if the depression was refractory to treatment, they stayed high. So looking at those numbers, because when you, I think a lot of people would, would maybe jump to the conclusion that, well, it's a healthcare issue, so it's probably paid for and wouldn't be costing people out of pocket, but you found something quite different. Absolutely. Yeah. When you look at the, the full scope of costs um, outside of what's covered by the healthcare system, for example, what people are losing for their paid or unpaid work that that, that is affected by depression, for um, the co-pays on prescription drugs or um, coverage coverage gaps for accessing psychotherapy and, and counseling services, we found that it's between two and fifteen times higher than what the health system pays alone. Which is a, a huge amount of money, I would imagine, uh, when, when you're talking about somebody that not only are you dealing with depression, but you're now dealing with the financial costs of it and the financial pressures. Yeah, it is a lot of money. Uh, uh, over $12 billion we estimated. And then you also need to think about the, the distribution of, and what people can pay um, after they've make, met the basic costs of living, like paying for your rent or mortgage and and uh, food and basic living expenses. And what types of things then are, are, are did you find that even if somebody maybe had extended health benefits or did have uh, treatments covered or some of their medical needs covered, what kinds of things are people paying for when it comes to uh, associated with major depression? What kinds of things are people still paying for out of their own pockets? I think the, the biggest thing is the invisible part where you don't notice the lost productivity. So what, perhaps you, you have unemployment insurance, but that's still covered um, by another sector of society outside of the healthcare system. And um, the other invisible cost is what is paid for informal caregiving. Often this, these are family members that really don't even think twice about wanting to help someone they love. And they, they spend the time, they travel with their, their loved one to medical appointments, they assist with stuff around the house. And uh, if you can keep tabs on it, it, it really does add up. And you said something really interesting, I, I think. Well, this whole study is, is very interesting, but you mentioned the timeline at the, the first few weeks of treatment or making sure to, to try and treat depression uh, sooner rather than later and that that has such a big, is, is such a big part of this that it has such, a, that the outcomes are very different and, and one of those outcomes being the finances. What, what is different or, or what do you see, did you see in this study that was so beneficial in getting that treatment, getting it in the first few weeks? I think you can prevent the, the downstream effects if you treat depression right the first time and it's effective. And there, this is, goes in with a, a bit of the, the funding purpose for the study was to be able to effectively figure out which prescriptions or which treatments patients are most likely to respond to the first time up front. So you can prevent some of that trial and error period that can be costly, both in time and, and uh, health benefits for when you continue having to figure out if the, the treatment's right or not. Um, and, and if it's effective. So getting the right and effective treatment early on um, was the take-home message. 
Did anything else stand out to you? And again, such a large study, like you said, with 250,000 people and taking a look specifically at the costs of major depression. Did anything else really stand out to you that maybe you weren't anticipating being some of the in the findings? Yeah, well, I was shocked because we, we aligned our metrics with the World Health Organization standardized measures of what we call financial protection. And I was surprised that even in high income Canada, we have several areas in BC that come close to reaching that threshold for financial hardship related to depression. Hmm. And uh, which, again, I think might might be a surprise to people as well to, to think that that the that threshold is being met in Canada, where I, I think we tend to make the assumption that so many things are covered. Yeah, yeah. The invisible costs, when you add them up, they, they really do uh, amount to to um, a, a threatening uh, outcome that we need to keep track of. And when you say we need to keep track of it, is that one of the issues too, that that we're not looking at all of the aspects of this in that, like you said, there are so many other costs when it comes to major depression and what people are dealing with, is that we're not tracking that and seeing what it is maybe beyond a diagnosis or beyond a prescription, that kind of thing. Absolutely. We can't change what we can't see. And often nobody talks about what what people put in or what people are losing or keeping track of it, it's a key. So where does your research go from this point on? And again, this is a new study that's, uh, that's been released looking at this. What do you, what, where do you go from here? We're hoping that this will be able to support new ways for quickly and effectively managing mental illness, such as depression, uh, early on and preventing the high costs that patients pay and looking at financial impacts as a, an outcome right alongside with the health-related outcomes, such as remission from depression or um, relapses when it doesn't work. Because I would imagine, too, one of the, one of the big things here is not, uh, I mean, obviously it's huge that people are paying this much out of out of pocket. And I know that that your study found, I mean, hundreds of dollars a week in some cases that people are, are paying this, but also the cost on the healthcare system. And like so many other things, again, treat, treating it early, not only is a better health diagnosis for somebody, but it's also better for the system in that it's not as costly. Absolutely. Uh, in fact, my colleagues who are looking at a pharmacogenomic test to help guide prescriptions found that it, it actually pays for itself within a couple years. So it's the economics are very favorable for early intervention that works really well. And, and you'll save those health system costs. Exactly. All right. Well, it's a very, very interesting research. We'll leave it there for today. But thank you so much for joining us and for sharing this with us today. My pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.